Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. The word of God for the people of God. Theological controversy is nothing new for people of faith. In our current context, we see the outworkings of this in the multitude of discussions concerning what constitutes the best interpretation of Christian faith and practice. Some of the more notorious in-house debates include creation views. For some people, a reading of Genesis 1 through 3 is very straightforward and very wooden. It's very literal. The way they understand God creating is through a, uh, a wooden process of day one, day two, day three, day four, as it's set out in Genesis chapter one. Other people want to step back a bit and not enforce a literalistic interpretation on that text, but want to view it more figuratively, seeing the theological ramifications of what's happening in Genesis one and Genesis two and Genesis three. Theological controversy stems from two differing groups, both identifying as Christians reading scripture in very different ways. Both groups will say that God creates. The question, however, is how does God create? Along with this particular topic is questions about the nature of the Bible, what it is, how it works, what we can expect from it, how we approach it, how we read it, what we um, are anticipating the results of our engagement with scripture being. For some people, again, it's very straightforward and wooden and literalistic, and other people want to dig in a bit deeper and go underneath the surface to try to figure out what is being said, but we see theological controversies between two separate groups of Christians who are both identifying as followers of Jesus, yet the way that they interpret Scripture is very, very, very different. Some folks would also identify in their soteriological views, it's a 50-cent party word, their soteriological views, which is fancy talk for how people get saved. Any youth group member knows this debate, the Calvinists versus the Arminians. The Calvinists would see in, in a very uh, basic understanding, we are jacked up people. Can I get an amen? Thank you. We are so jacked up, in fact, according to Calvinists, they would say there's no chance on our own that we would ever want to follow Jesus. Therefore, as Josh Revel puts it, God must intervene. 
supernaturally and individually in your life to soften your heart so that you can accept Jesus. For some people, Calvinists, it would be very much an election scale where God is selecting individuals to save because left to our own devices, we would not ever choose to follow Jesus. Other folks would see, well, it's not quite that individualistic. It's more God's grace that is provenient. And yeah, we're jacked up because of sin. However, when the gospel is preached, anyone who wants to respond can respond because the Holy Spirit is working not just in the lives of individual people, but the Holy Spirit is working completely and supernaturally over the entire audience so that anyone who wants to accept Jesus can accept Jesus. And these two different streams are divided in how they read and interpret scripture and in some ways how they practice the gospel. Modes of baptism, people fight about all the time. Do we baptize babies? Do we baptize believers? Do we sprinkle them? Do we dunk them? How do we do it? When do we do it? Why do we do it? For some people in Christian communities, they would say, in order to be saved, you must be baptized. And other Christian communities would say it's not quite that intense. It's a symbol of our relationship with Jesus. The role of women in ministry has become a dividing line between church communities. For some church communities, they celebrate the inclusion and full participation of women as pastors, as leaders, as elders, as deacons. Fill in whatever blank you want to, and those women can serve in those capacities. And for these church communities, they serve with grace and with honor, and with respect. For other church communities, however, their reading of the New Testament seems to limit what women can and can't do within a corporate church setting. End times views. Some people have their charts, and they're all filled in with what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, whether it's the rapture, the kingdom, millennial kingdom, or the tribulation, all these different things. And some people have interpreted scripture in a way that says, this is exactly how this is going to pan out. I remember as a high schooler, my Bible teacher brought in this old VHS tape, and you knew it was awesome when they wheeled in that big mammoth TV with a VCR attached to it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm dating myself a bit. Some people look at me like, what's a VCR? Well, kids, when they wheeled in that big TV and my Bible teacher put in that tape, it was called A Thief in the Night. And this was basically espousing a, an end times view where the rapture happens, but somebody's been left behind. Right? And I remember vividly the opening scene is this guy like shaving his face with an electric razor that's plugged into the wall. And in the next scene, his wife is screaming and the electric razor is still on sitting in the sink. And he is gone. His clothes are folded up off to the corner somewhere and nobody knows what's going on. The show climaxed in people's heads getting chopped off. And I remember like helicopters circling. Yeah, and I'm like in my formative years here and I'm completely scarred. That's, that's an end times view, and other people want to go in, in a little bit different directions. Perhaps the most contentious and divisive issue within the American church, I probably don't even need to say it out loud, but I'm going to, LGBTQ inclusion. We have some church communities that are embracing and affirming people for who they are, whatever that entails, and we have other church communities that want to put restrictions on that, and we have division within the church theological controversies are nothing new. Even in a 21st century American context, they're, they're nothing new. The early church had their own stuff to work out as well. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was such a bombshell event that it completely transformed the landscape of human history. And for the early church in the first few centuries, they were trying to define and catalog and solidify Christian theology what it looked like to follow 
Jesus, who he was, how we should attempt to live for him. So the early ecumenical creeds of the Orthodox Christian faith, that just sounds so good, rolling off my tongue, I hope you're with me, and the early church people formulating what these theological statements of faith, if you will, looked like. We have examples in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. They attempted to set out the non-negotiable core tenets of the Christian faith. The Nicene Creed begins with clarity and conviction. We, the church universal, we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I'll return to this, but I think it's absolutely beautiful how even these creedal statements that are identifying the core tenets, they leave room for discussion. We believe in one God, maker of heaven, maker of earth. Well, how did he do it? It's a conversation that can take place very comfortably within a confession stating and affirming the creeds. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Jesus, all things were made. Catch this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate, he took on flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and my theological nerds in the room will want me to say a little bit about this clause. This was something that was debated for a long time, centuries, in fact, this addition of and the Son, that the Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Even throughout those early centuries, people were still trying to identify what exactly it is that formulates and solidifies the core of Christian theology. The Spirit also spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the church universal that includes us. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. We believe. As I mentioned, the Nicene Creed, it, it, it gives us room to have these discussions. And I think that this is great because it encourages what's called a big tent understanding of the Christian faith, where it's not just the Nazarenes or the Methodists or the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians or crazy TRP. It's all of us together celebrating who Jesus is. It doesn't give us license to exclude individuals or whole fellowships based on our views on baptism or who gets to hold the microphone and preach or how God went about creating this world. Now, any of you that know me, you know that I nearly live to have these deep 
nerdy theological conversations. And if at any point in your life you want me to buy you coffee and we sit and we talk about some of this deep theological stuff, I would love to do that. For me, this is important, important, important. However, for the things outside of the bounds of the creeds, our answers do not determine who's in and who's out. We believe. In our passage this evening, the controversy surrounds a core tenet. It surrounds future bodily resurrection. The Nicene Creed states, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. I think for many Christians, we've kind of jacked up what's going to happen because what we have made as the end result of our faith is heaven this disembodied moment where we just kind of float on clouds and we hang out with Jesus and we don't even think about resurrection. N.T. Wright would call resurrection actually the central engine of Christian hope, where we are looking forward to the day where we participate in the resurrection as Jesus has already set the stage for us. In Jesus' day, however, future bodily resurrection, it was still something of an up-and-comer. And I think that this is pretty neat when we think about theology as something that's progressive, as we'll see in a bit. According to one Old Testament scholar, my main man, Walter Brueggemann, he says there are two, not one, but two texts in the Old Testament that clearly attest to future bodily resurrection. And both of these texts are admittedly late in the game. Remember, our Bibles is a collection of 66 different books. And even within some of these books, we have different sections that were written at different times by different authors for different people. It's not unilaterally dropping from the sky. It's rooted in specific historical context. And the two Old Testament passages that talk about future bodily resurrection, where after our death, God's covenant love and his committed love to us is so great that he will take whatever is left of us and rise us up to being reconstituted and resurrected with new and glorified bodies. The two texts that, that state this are pretty late in the game. This is a development that's taken place over time. This is Isaiah 26. A lot of scholars would date Isaiah 24 through 27, I believe, as, as a later addition to Isaiah. And I know that we're dipping back into the controversial theological stuff when I start talking about different dates to Isaiah, but stick with me. And Isaiah 26, even if we're going with an early date, it's the eighth century, so there's still been 600 or so years from the beginning there's been development, and the author says, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Your bodies will live. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Daniel 12 says something similar, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes, it says, who sleep in the dust of the earth. This is a classic euphemism for people are dead and buried. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. What we see in these two passages are a development of theology, a progression of theology that now includes resurrection, something that was not formulated prior to, something that in Jesus' day people kind of took for granted. 
The Sadducees, however, the people that approach Jesus in this second confrontation story in the book of Mark, are coming to Jesus and attempting to trick him and trap him. The Sadducees were an extremely conservative group of religious leaders. There was ties to the Israelite priesthood. There was ties to the temple. They were kind of like top dogs in some circles. But they were at odds with the Pharisees. Now, this is important because we see any religious leader as uniform. We see them all as the same, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees. I know you guys think about this a lot. Like, you're just eating dinner, and you're thinking, man, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, their theological uh, commitments, are, they're very similar. But you're wrong. They're very different in, in this sense where the, the Sadducees are the extremely conservative group of religious people. Now wrap your brain around that because the image that you have of the Pharisees, they are the legalistic watchdogs, but yet the Sadducees are even more conservative than the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they base their theology on the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is a select uh, portion of the Old Testament known as the Torah. It's instruction, it's teaching, it's in including some law. The Sadducees in this, uh, basing their theology on the Pentateuch, they reject future bodily resurrection, and Mark makes this clear for us in setting up how he tells the story. Then the Sadducees, by the way, you need to know this, who say there is no resurrection. That's important if you're gonna understand the story. The, the author is kind of tipping his hat, saying, if you're gonna figure out what's going on here, you need to know this vital piece of information. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, their plan is to trap Jesus by pointing out how ridiculous of an idea it is that you will die, and then at some point in the future, God will say, arise, my love. I snuck that reference in there. Thank you, Josh Engel. I'm glad that you appreciate Christian contemporary music from roughly 1985 to 89, somewhere in that general vicinity. Uh, the rest of you, you need to get on with it. Um, but here, they're pointing out how ridiculous it is for resurrection to take place. Just sit here and think for a second. You die, but then later, God brings you back from the dead, and not just a resuscitation. You're resurrected to live forever. It boggles the mind, and the Sadducees said, that's completely ridiculous, and we're going to create a story to demonstrate just, in fact, how ridiculous this is. So, they begin now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. Now here, what the Sadducees are doing is they're dipping into their own sacred text, and there's something called leveret marriage. Say leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. This is something that is instituted to protect women in the ancient Near East because without this, they would be completely and utterly alone. Women are married to their husbands, and their tie to the land and their tie to inheritance is through their husband, and it's also through their children. So worst case scenario, young woman married to young man, young man dies before they are able to have children. The law in Deuteronomy 25 sets up provisions for this woman. Deuteronomy 25 says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now, this is not the duty of a brother-in-law in our current context. 
it's kind of weird. But for an ancient audience, this was life because without this husband and without this child, she has nothing. The job of that guy was to impregnate this, this woman so that she has a child. This is something that brothers do in the ancient world. They provide for their sister-in-laws. So what the Sadducees are doing is they're spinning this story about not one brother dies, but two brothers dies, and three brothers dies, and four, and five. And by the end of it, there's seven people that have been married to this young woman who is kind of made up in, in their mind. And they say, at the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be since seven were married to her? Mike drop, Sadducees win the day. This is an oh snap moment for people that were here last week. The Sadducees think that they have created this story that is so crazy and so outlandish that Jesus will just have to say, oh man, you guys got me. You're right. There is no resurrection. Oh, that's too bad. Because in their mind, you would have to deny one of two things. Either God would allow someone to be a polygamist, to have multiple wives in the age to come, or God would in a sense be um, supporting and endorsing divorce or separation. Because if you pick, oh, well, she's gotta be the first guy's wife, then what about the other six that were intimately connected to this woman? And if you say, well, all seven of them would be, then what do you say about the other wives of the other brothers and the other things and all this stuff that's going on? It just becomes absurd. And this was the Sadducees' point. They were creating a story that was so ridiculous and so outlandish that they could just drop that microphone and walk away and say, yeah, chew on that, Jesus theological controversy even in the first century in Jesus' time was not something new. And yeah, if you think about it, that's a pretty good question. Like if we're going to talk about the resurrection, we're going to talk about family ties going into the age to come, what does it look like? The Sadducees, they kind of, they, they tap into this human nature where we want to know what the future holds and we want to know what it's going to look like. Now, there's a couple of different things that I want to look at just kind of for fun, all right? So the first one is questions that people asked in the early church about resurrection, this idea that, that you would rise from the dead and that God would raise you. This is Tertullian, who was a church father in the second century. And somebody comes up to Tertullian and says, suppose, Tertullian, a cannibal eats a Christian. And suppose the cannibal is then himself converted to Jesus. The Christian's body has become part of the cannibal's body. Who will have which bits in the resurrection? Come on, guys, you can't, you can't get better than that. This is what theologians are paid to do. They sit around in rooms, they get fancy degrees, and they wear their regalia, and they just say, mm, yes, if a cannibal, like they come up with ridiculous stuff. And I don't know why more of you don't want to go to seminary. I'm Tertullian says something kind of lame, like, well, God will sort that out. I mean, he was a pretty you know, rigid church father, but... That's a question. When you start thinking about, okay, if we're going to buy into this resurrection bit, what does that look like practically? Now, I know a lot of Christians also want to dip into uh, some question or at least a topic that Salt and Pepper introduced, you know, a few years ago. Let's talk about sex. What does it look like in the age to come? Do we have those marital relationships that continue on? Are we allowed to engage in that sort of intimate way in the life to come? 
And theologians are kind of split on this. I see the faces like, oh, man, you need to stop talking, move on. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I just want to warn you, okay? just want to warn you. Uh, one scholar from... Uh, that's writing on the book of Mark that we've looked at quite often in our, in our studies here. He says, we can only conclude that for Jesus, the divine creativity has something much better than sex in store for the redeemed. So when Jesus continues, and we'll look at this, he says, people are neither married nor given, people neither marry, excuse me, nor are they given in marriage in the age to come. Which for some scholars would mean that there are no marital relationships that continue on. Other people want to push back against that, but from this text, we're not getting a lot from Jesus with regard to what this looks like. Now, I've got, I've got to, because st guys, stuff gets weird when you're dealing with scholars, okay? I got this vetted by my leadership team, although I actually just kind of proposed it to them and said, how weird is this? And they all said, yeah, it's pretty weird, but I just want you to hear it, you know, for the, for the sake of it, okay? One scholar says, He's concluded that the most ecstatic orgasm ever experienced in a love-caressed marriage won't hold a candle to what touch and taste and smell and sight and sound will bring to children of the resurrection. You ever like had a joke or something and you get a couple feet into it, you're like, this is not going to be good, I need to abort, I need to abort, but you're too far in to give up on it. Have you ever been there? I've got to say this, too. When I, I, I threw this out to the leadership team and, and Doug said, yeah, that's, that sounds about right to me. I mean, people, people you know, I, I feel like I say that phrase quite a bit. You know? <laughs> the most ecstatic orgasm ever experienced in a love-caressed marriage. I, yeah, I know when I, no, nope, nope, edit. I'm going to edit that. Um, but what this guy's doing is saying, it's not about sex. If that's good, whatever is going to be in the age to come is going to be so much better. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We're not getting a lot from Jesus with regard to the questions that we have about what will it look like in the age to come with regard to our husbands or our wives or our widows, our families. I certainly don't want to um, take away from the notion that we have that there will be a sweet reunion. I hope so. And I've read enough scholars that would lead us there to say there's a lot of people that have that idea that these ties that are being formed here, which are emblematic of Christ and his love for the church, how in the world could they be severed? But from this text, there's not a lot to base that on. So yeah, Sadducees, good question. What does it look like and what can we expect now, when Jesus answers this, he kind of goes into a, a different direction regarding the resurrection that is to come in the future. These two Old Testament texts that point us there and the development of that in what's called the intertestamental period and how everybody or most people in first century Jewish world would have anticipated a future bodily resurrection except for the Sadducees and their cronies. Most people were on board with that. Jesus wants to affirm that and say, yeah, that's actually what's going to happen and that's where we're going. He introduces this by saying, and remember, the Sadducees have kind of dropped the mic. They've got this really ridiculous story, and they say, now what, Jesus? And he comes back headhunting. Are you not in error? Are you not misguided? Are you not deceived? Because you don't know the Bible, you don't even know your book, and you don't know the power of God. 
I've had people kind of ticked at me about some ideas, but they usually don't come out guns ablazing with, you don't know Bible and you don't know the power. Like these are just bold words that, are, that Jesus is, is throwing out to the Sadducees here and kind of setting the stage for what he's about to do to them theologically. He says, when the dead rise, when this happens, this thing that you want to lampoon and kind of make fun of when the dead rise. Yes, we do have something that we're looking forward to when the dead rise. He goes beyond that by saying, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, what's interesting about this is remember, people, what set of texts, what books in the Old Testament do the Sadducees accept as their own? The books of Moses. Jesus knows that the prophets aren't gonna work, the wisdom literature is not gonna work, anything that hints towards resurrection outside of these first five books of the Bible, that's not gonna work. So what he does is he goes back to the Pentateuch. He goes back to Torah, and not only that, he goes back to a story that is so well known. Moses' call at the burning bush, and it's really neat how he, how he does this. Have you not read, and it's, uh, I didn't read this, I'm kind of just going off the cuff here, but it's like uh, he could really be kind of Sticking it to him here. Have you not read in the book of Moses, you know, the, you know that story about Moses when he's at the burning bush? Have you heard of that one? It's kind of, I don't know if that's in there, but he, he's going at him a bit here, and he says, when God says to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he goes and gives us his interpretation of this story by saying, he is not the God of the dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're gone by Moses' time, but he is the God of the living, through 21st century American eyes, we read that and we're like, not really a great argument, Jesus. What are you talking about? And this is where, in order to understand this, we kind of have to dip into the cultural context. When Jesus brings this up, they would have made the connection to God being so radically committed to the covenant, the promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to his people that death cannot even separate him from his people. He is not the God of the dead. He will bring those jokers back to life because of the promises that he has made and he will not fail to keep them. Deal with that, Sadducees. Jesus is kind of getting into this where he's appealing to not a a play on some, some scholars have said, see how it says I am currently, I still am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That must mean that they're not dead, but they're alive. like, okay, yeah, not really. It's more about this tie that God has to these people. A tie that I'll go ahead and make this connection for you that is yours. The promise that God has made to be present in your life the promise that God has made to be with you, to guide you, to mold you, to shape you, to care for you, to nurture you like a nursing mom, and to protect you like a dad. This is the one that is promising himself to you, and death won't stop him. Now about the dead rising, Jesus says, it's going to happen in the future. God will bring us to life. 
reconstitute our bodies, resurrect us, and allow us to experience his promises in a way that we can't even imagine. And just a side note, this is something that's forthcoming for those that we love that have gone on and passed away. Their story has not been finished. They are in the presence of God, but there will be a day when they will rise from the dead with a glorified body and will experience all the goodness of what God has for them. And sometimes we forget that beautiful future that's out there awaiting for those. And this is where it gets really good though. When Jesus is talking about the resurrection that is to come, he says that it's going to happen. He says it's going to happen because God is faithful even beyond death. But more than that, Jesus says resurrection is happening now. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. It's not just words on a screen. That's the very core tenet of our theology, that when we are in a faith relationship with Jesus, it's not something that's out there somewhere that we're waiting to cash in on. It's something that's happening here and now. And I don't think there's a better example of this than in John 11, when Jesus and his friends hear about Lazarus and how sick he is, yet Jesus says, I'm not going to go to him yet. We're gonna do some teaching. And he stalls the trip. He doesn't go to pray over Lazarus who's, who's sick and, and potentially getting ready to die. He waits, in fact, until Lazarus has passed away. And when he starts to show up, Martha, one of Lazarus's sisters, she sees him in the distance and she goes and runs to him and she kind of gives him the ninth degree saying, what in the world were you doing? We know that you're powerful, we know that you're good, but you weren't here, Jesus. What the heck is going on? My word's not her, I'm not sure. She's ticked though, and Jesus says, your brother will rise. He puts a period on it. It's funny because Martha says, yeah, 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 I know he's gonna rise at the end of the age. This is, other than the Sadducees, this is what people believed, remember? He, yeah, he's, he's gonna rise at the end of the age, but what Jesus says is so vital. No, I am the resurrection. It's happening now. For those of us that are sitting here and you got your junk and you got your baggage and you got the stuff that's weighing you down, whether it's a sin that's, that's completely got you entrapped and entangled and you feel like there's no way out or if it's a work situation or a relationship situation or anything that's holding you back where you feel absolutely powerless, what we are failing to see in that moment is resurrection is happening now. Hearts are transformed, lives are changed, people are becoming who God is wanting them to become through a belief in Jesus. This is not just church. In many ways, this is life. This is not just theological conundrums that we create about seven brothers or about if cannibals eat each other or this ridiculous stuff like that. This is hope for us. And this is why when N.T. Wright says that that central engine of hope is resurrection, we can see what he's talking about because we're allowed to experience to some small degree a foretaste of what it is. 
when we are united with Christ, when we say, God, I've got nothing, I bring nothing to the table, whatever it is that you want from me, take it, you've got it. And when that transformation takes place through the Spirit working in your life, resurrection is happening. You are becoming something that you were not before. You are becoming who God has intended you to be. The cool thing about resurrection, it's not just about me and it's about you, but we actually are part of a larger, whole-scale, cosmic redemption where Paul says even creation is groaning and waiting for Jesus to complete this work. When we see ourselves as part of that large-scale process where Jesus is transforming us each and every day, and we begin to allow ourselves to see the role that we play in this grand restoration project that God has initiated, it's a beautiful thing. We believe. We get so bogged down with the theological controversies. We get so bogged down with the things outside on the margins. We get so bogged down with who said this and who said that. And we get so bogged down with what's the right answer, what's the wrong answer, what am I supposed to do, that in the midst of that, we forget the core tenets. God, Jesus, spirit, redemption, forgiveness of sins, baptism, resurrection, and life. We believe. My prayer tonight is that we believe. That we can put whatever controversies aside and we can unite around the broken body and shed blood and empty tomb of our king and say, whatever it is that you want from me, Jesus, you have it. Begin to transform me. Begin to resurrect me now. I believe that all it takes is willingness is a heart that says, I bring nothing to the table. It's a willingness to allow God to intervene in our lives. It's a willingness to be used and shaped and molded. And through the Spirit, it's courage to see that played out in the relationships that we have, in the work environments that we live in, in the houses that we go home to, and we begin to see resurrection taking place in us, and we become agents of resurrection to others through Christ. We believe. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we can identify just even a small portion of those core tenets that are so beautiful. Allow us to hold them with both of our hands clasped tightly in the midst of the suffering that we face and the persecution that we might face and in the midst of the questions and the doubts, allow us just to have something to hold on to. In the midst of our lives, whether they're good or whether they're hard or whether they're confusing, allow us to see resurrection happening here and now in and through us and in the world around us. Help this not to be just things that we say and creeds that we recite, but help it to be life and hope and goodness. Allow us not just to look forward to the day, but to see Jesus saying to us, I am the resurrection. Trust me. God, we're thankful. Help us to celebrate the stories of transformation that we've seen. Help us to 
anticipate the work that you're going to do in this community and in the people around us and in this region and through the summer feeding program and through the garden and through all the different things that are happening, not just in our church, but in the universal church in Salisbury where we see lives changed and transformed for you. Allow that to be the thing that motivates us and pushes us to see you in action. And God, we ask this big prayer that you would use us to advance your kingdom, that you would use us in whatever it is that you have planned for this community, for Salisbury, for this region, and that you would, God, that you would just allow us to see how good you truly are and to be motivated by that. God, we're thankful for salvation that's only through your son Jesus, and we're thankful that however that has worked out in our lives, that we are here right now to hear these words and that we are able to respond through your spirit who is guiding us and moving us. And God, for those that, that haven't made that, made that step, make tonight be the night. God, we're thankful and we're hopeful and we're grateful. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.